Father, we ask your blessings this morning. Father, as we gather to be with one another, to pray, to sing praises, Father, to you, to break open your word. Father, may this be a time where we are encouraged, where we are convicted, where we are admonished. Whatever you have for us this morning, may we accept it. And Father, may we just be a time where we can give you the praise and the glory that you so rightfully deserve. Be with us specifically this time as we break open your word. May you give me clarity of speech. May you allow my humble strivings at teaching your word, Father, be heard, Father, in a way that impacts our lives to be more like Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you look around this morning at one another, you would notice that each of us is very different. God made every one of us very unique. We look different. We talk different. We act different. Some of you are more different than others. <laughs> unique than others. But what we are going to talk about this morning is not how we are different, but we're going to talk about something that we all have in common. And what we're going to talk about is the issue of temptation. And I know for a fact that every one of us have to deal with temptation. None of us are immune. The Apostle John in his letter says that if anyone claims to have no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. So if everyone sins, then everyone must deal with temptation because temptation precedes sin. But let's be correct. Temptation is not sin. It's not sin to be tempted, but temptation can lead to sin if it's not dealt with correctly. We know it is not sin because Jesus was tempted. He was tempted, but he did not sin. Fortunately for us, we have a Savior that has understands temptation. Hebrews 4 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I think it's amazing to think that Jesus Christ has experienced temptation in all the same ways that we have, and yet he never sinned. That's how come he can understand it and he can sympathize with us. But he endured it. And he endured it directly from Satan himself. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the temptation of Christ as recorded in Luke chapter 4. If you want to be turning there, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of Luke. And we're not going to have time to look at every verse in minute detail. But we're going to look at the context, overall context of the passage as a whole. And we're going to see how Jesus battled temptation and how we can learn from it. You have probably heard that our battle with sin encompasses three main adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that evil secular system we're all a part of that gives no thought to God, but is all man-centered. It's all about me. First John talks about that in First John 2, 15 through 17, where he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. That's one area we're tempted in, is the world. The evil system... That is about me. Another is the flesh. The flesh is that sinful part of us that we were born with. Because of Adam's sin, even though we are redeemed, we still live in a fleshly body that struggles with the flesh, the sin of the flesh. And Galatians 5 is a great chapter 
um, on the flesh and it lists a lot of the sins of the flesh. So we are tempted of the world by the world. We are tempted by the flesh. And the third way we are tempted is by the devil himself. There's a verse in 1 Peter 5.8 that says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy our lives. And we all probably know someone whose life has been destroyed because of sin. Sometimes it's because of the love of the world. Sometimes it's because of the lust of the flesh. Sometimes it's become this, uh, just by attacks, demonic attacks personally from Satan and his demons. But a common denominator of all of these is that they begin with temptation. No one sins without first going through temptation. And this passage, we're going to witness temptation directly from the devil himself aimed directly at Christ. In all his humanity, yes, he is God in the flesh, but he was also fully man. And in his earthly body, he was tempted by the devil. And we're going to see in this passage several significant insights. We're going to see Satan's strategy against God and his people. We're going to see Christ's example and how to defeat his tempter, the way of danger and the way of escape, side by side. So let's read our text in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, and we'll go all the way through 13. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during these days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, as we look at these verses, we're going to look at them in three parts. We're going to look at the preparation, the temptations, and the victory. So first, the preparation. In this context, the encounter takes place immediately after Jesus' baptism. We know that Jesus' baptism is significant because it is the coronation of his earthly ministry. And I don't think it's by coincidence that Satan immediately attacks him right after this great event. I'm sure as Jesus officially starts his ministry, it is right now that Satan wants to derail it. And it's equally important that Jesus prove who he is who he says he is. He needs to successfully defeat Satan right now if he's going to be able to defeat him on the cross. And verse 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And the parallel passage in Mark, if you read that, you'll see that Mark says that the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. The use of this word translated impelled 
shows the necessity of Jesus' temptation. It was Satan doing the tempting, but remember, it's part of God's overall plan. In James 1.13, we read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. God allows temptation, but he never does the tempting. The tempting came from Satan, but it was allowed by God for his purposes. If you look at the account recorded in Matthew 3.17, you will find that immediately after Jesus was baptized, that God spoke. And do you remember what he said? He said, This is my beloved son, and who I am well pleased. Jesus had just begun his ministry. His father had just made this great proclamation. And now, immediately after this great event, comes the temptation. And that brought up a thought. How many times right after a victory or a high point in life are we confronted with temptation? 1 Corinthians 10:12 warns us, it says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think sometimes a great accomplishment in life causes us to have pride, to think we did it by our power. Other times, successes cause us to feel invincible and we let down our guard. I was thinking about Elijah and the great victory he had with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. When you think about that event and how the Lord sent down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifices in the wood that he had doused with water, and then he answered Elijah's prayer, and it began to rain in Judah, which had been in drought for a long time. This is all recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it's a great event, a great high point in Elijah's life. But if you read chapter 19, do you remember what happened right after that? Within 24 hours after this great event, you read about the prophet Elijah. His courage is gone. The victory is overshadowed by despair. And threats from the woman Jezebel have him asking God to just take his life. And how can you go from that such a high point to such a low point? It's because Satan knows when to tempt you. And sometimes it comes right after a great accomplishment. Now the tempting by Satan here with Jesus takes place in the Judean wilderness. I got to get a feel of this last year when we were in Israel. And it's a hot, barren place. The Judean wilderness is a place 35 miles long by 15 miles wide, and it extends from the Dead Sea up towards Jerusalem. It's a place of yellow sand and crumbling limestone. The hills are just dust piles. The rocks are blistering and peeling. Nowhere could Jesus have been more isolated and uncomfortable. And verse 2 tells us that Jesus ate nothing for 40 days, and it says he became hungry. A simple statement, but if you've ever fasted for any length of time, you know what it means to be tired, to be weak, and to be hungry. You are ready for relief and comfort. Many times this is when Satan attacks, when we are weak, and many times unprepared. Now, Jesus may have been tired and hungry and weak, but he was not unprepared. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he went off to pray, and the disciples went to sleep. When Jesus returned, what did he say? Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with us for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Now, although Jesus is weak and hungry, he's not taken off guard. The pattern of his life was to always be seeking God's will, to be praying and to communing with the Father. What was Jesus doing during this 40 days? It says he was fasting. I think we can assume... That, that included praying, praying and fasting. One of the lessons of this passage is that in order to be victorious over temptation, we need to be watchful 
We need to be guarded in prayer. That is how we are to be prepared for it. Jesus was prepared because his life was devoted to this, to prayer, to fasting, to seeking God's will. That's one way Jesus was prepared. But verse 1 shares with us, of chapter 4 of Luke, shares with us probably the number one reason that he was able to beat these temptations. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So before we move on, we have to determine what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. First, let's clarify what it's not. It's not some emotional, magical experience that occurs after salvation that suddenly elevates you to a more spiritual level. The verses we are studying today say that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. The phrase is used many times in Scripture. When the church at Jerusalem wanted men to free up the apostles so they would have time for prayer and teaching, it says they chose men full of the Spirit and full of faith. The Scriptures say that because Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit that he was able to gaze into heaven and see the glory of God as he was about to be stoned. And in these verses, you see that there's no mention of this being some special time where they were zapped and started talking in tongues. That's not what it's talking about. Second, it's not the same as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit is not the same as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's clear from Scripture that every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Romans 8 9, Paul tells us, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We could look at all kinds of Scripture to back that up. Unlike in the Old Testament, where the Spirit indwelt individuals for specific times and purposes, Scripture teaches that all believers at the moment of salvation are indwelt by the Spirit. The third thing that the being filled with the Spirit is not is it is not a process of being given doses or various degrees of the Holy Spirit. I've heard people say things like, He has more of the Spirit than someone else because they seem to be more spiritual. There's a verse in John 3:34 that says, Jesus actually said it. He said, He gives the Spirit without measure. There aren't degrees of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can't have part of Him. The Bible teaches all Christians have the Spirit of God residing in them. He indwells them at the point of salvation. There are not degrees. The Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. So what does being filled with the Spirit mean? The actual word in the original language is pleru, and it is literally translating being kept filled. It is a command that is ongoing, keep on being filled. It is the day-by-day, moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit's control. The word in the original is the present passive tense. Passive because it infers that it's not something we do, but we allow to be done to us. Its present tense says that it's happening even now. It's not just a one-time thing that happened in the past. To be Filled with the Spirit is to be moved along in our Christian walk by God. Some of the ways it was used in secular writings was it was used in describing a sail that was being filled by the wind and moved along, along the water. Another way it was used in the idea of permeation. When something permeates, it filters through something until it affects every part of it. Thirdly, it is used in a way that relinquishes total control. It is used in different places in the Bible referring to someone who is filled with fear, as in Luke 5, filled with anger, filled with sorrow, filled with faith. It means you are not in control, but you are under control of whatever is dominating you. In the same way, the Holy Spirit takes control of the Spirit-filled Christian. A person who is filled by the Spirit is a person that is walking day by day, moment by moment, thought by thought, action by action, decision by decision, under the Spirit's control. 
The opposite of being filled by the Spirit would be walking according to the flesh, being controlled by the things of the flesh. And Galatians 5 is a great place to go to study some of the deeds of the flesh. We could continue looking at this one point for the rest of the time, but that's not our intent. Just remember, the reason Jesus was victorious over Satan's temptation was because he was prepared for it. The pattern of his life was one of watchfulness and prayer, and he was perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we will see later, he was prepared because he knew and applied the Word of God perfectly. So now in verses 3 and 4, we come to the actual temptations that Satan brought before him. Actually, if you read this, it says that this whole 40 days he was being tempted. But we have only three that are recorded. And that's, this is the ones that, that the Lord wanted us to be able to see. Read, let me read verse 3 and 4 again. It says, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, most of the commentaries I read said the word if could be better translated since. Since you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan had no doubt about who Jesus was. He wasn't saying that to try to find out if he was really the Christ. He didn't mean if in the literal sense. He, it was, he really meant since you are the Son of God. I think it's strange as I read this that many liberal theologians, cults, and false religions deny who Jesus was. But the Bible says Satan never does that. His demons never did that in the Bible. They knew who Jesus was. So Satan's first temptation comes, and what's the temptation? It's not a temptation of self-indulgence. It wouldn't be wrong for Jesus to eat. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's hungry. So what's the temptation? The temptation is to use his divine powers for his own benefit, to not trust in his Father's love and provision. Ironically, Jesus would be tempted again in the same way, in a similar way, when he was on the cross. Remember what the Roman soldiers said to him? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But Jesus came to do the will of the Father and not his own will. He said in John 4:34, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Remember in the garden when he was faced with the horrible expectation of what was coming, he prayed, If possible, Father, could you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, your will, not mine be done. Satan wanted Jesus to act against God's will, to take matters into his own hands. He had the power to overcome this lack of food, to do something about it. Don't wait on God. Do it now. As I thought about this, I thought, how often have I been tempted in this way to take matters into my own, own hand, to not wait or to, do, to act in, in disobedience? This temptation reminds us that no matter how urgent our needs seem at the time, it's never right to compromise our convictions to go against the Word of God. Scripture teaches us that God knows what we need even before we ask Him. This was absolute trust and submission that Satan wanted to destroy. But how did Jesus respond? He quoted Scripture again, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So what was Jesus' first line of offense against Satan? the word of God. Remember the words of David in Psalm 119.11? Thy word have I hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. That is our main line of attack against Satan is scripture. And no one knew the scripture better than Jesus. The words it is written are important because 
They signify the authority from which the words come. It is written does not mean it's written down in just some book somewhere. It comes from the Holy Scripture, the written Word of God. Man shall not live on bread alone. This actually is a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. The rest of that verse says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. It's not food that gives us life, but obedience to the words of the Lord. And this point is illustrated by the deaths of the disobedient Israelites who eventually died in the wilderness. You remember they were receiving manna day by day in the wilderness. And it's not the food that saved them or kept them out of the promised land because they eventually died in the wilderness because of disobedience. They were judged because of it. Jesus refused to act on his own initiative, but he completely trusted God and chose to remain in submission to his will. And in his timing, God did provide for Jesus. It doesn't tell us here in Mark, but in Matthew 4:11, in the account of Matthew's of this, it says that he tells us that when Satan left, that the angels came and ministered to him. Are we ever tempted to not trust God? To act outside of his will? Think about it. Every time we are disobedient, we are in essence saying, I don't trust you, Lord. My way is better. When someone cheats on their taxes, doesn't report everything, or takes a deduction they are not entitled to, they are saying, in essence, I don't trust God to provide for me. I must take matters into my own hand. When one commits a sexual sin, they are in essence saying, God's way of fulfilling me and making me happy doesn't work. I'm going to do it the world's way. Most sin, when boiled down to, is selfish in nature. Are we going to trust God and please God? Or are we going to trust self and please self? So we see in the first temptation, we see that Jesus, like us, was tempted by Satan to take matters into his own hands, to reject God's plan and do it his way. Now we come to temptation number two in verses five through eight. Verse 5 says, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we see after Satan failed in his attempt to persuade Jesus to not trust God in his love and provision, Satan tries another approach. He takes them up. Matthew tells us in his version it's high on top of a mountain. Which one, we don't know. But by the words, in a moment of time, it sounds like it might have been even a supernatural event. Somehow Satan had the ability to show Jesus far beyond the normal view. He may have showed him the glories of Egypt and the pyramids. He may have showed him the splendor of Rome and its greatest vast empire. He probably showed him great cities like Athens and Corinth. We know probably he showed him Jerusalem, the royal city of David. The scripture says all the kingdoms of the world he showed to him. And it's worth noting that Satan uses half-truths a lot in his temptations. He said that the world has been handed over to him and he could give it to whomever he wished. That's not entirely true. The Bible does say that Satan is the god of this world, but it's talking about that evil system of this world. It means he's the ruler of this evil world system for now. The Bible also is clear that God gives the boundaries. He gives the nation's existence. He ordains the governments and rulers. And that he's sovereign over all peoples and nations. Satan is the father of lies. Satan is a deceiver. And he pretends to offer what was not his to give. 
But Satan's also not ignorant. He knows that all of this is actually going to be given to Jesus in the end anyway. It's rightfully his, but it's just not the right time. It's like the son that wants the inheritance now, even though he's rightfully going to get it someday. He's impatient and he wants it now. His temptation was to bypass God's plan for a quicker and easier way. Now think about where Jesus is and where he came from. He's given up the throne in heaven. He's in the barren Judean wilderness. Probably has nothing but the clothes on his back. Jesus knows what the future holds. A life of poverty. The Bible says he has nowhere to lay his head. The rejection of his people is is happening. The agony of Gethsemane is to come. A brutal scourging. An unjust trial. The pain and agony of the cross. He would soon cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As God has to turn his back as he bears the sin. Satan's temptation was to bypass all of that and take the easy road. It ends in the same place, but my way is easier than God's way. The condition Satan puts on his proposal shows his true motive, though. But Satan says, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Isn't this what caused Satan to be thrown out of heaven in the first place? Satan wants to be worshipped, and he still does today. In fact, all false religions and cults, ultimately some form of worship is given to Satan. It may not be outright said that way, but that's where the worship is given. This is the way Satan attacks all of us. He offers us a better way. Just cut a few corners. Compromise a few beliefs. Everybody else does it. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to know. Be a Christian on Sunday, not at work. I've told this example before, but Terry and our daughter, Angie, are real estate agents, and they've been several times where it would have benefited them financially if they had cut a few corners or not told the whole truth to a client. Because it's it's notoriously, in that industry, it seems like, you know, you can withhold some things and it may help you. Don't tell them that there's a sinkhole next door. <laughs> don't tell them, you know, the house has been treated for termites. There's There's things that you can withhold, and if they don't ask, they'll never know. But that's not, you know, that's not biblical and that's not what they do. But they once worked for a broker that told them one time he knew they were Christians, but they would be better off successfully in real estate if they would act more like Jews. <laughs> Sorry about that, Steve. <laughs> that's a true story. He, he actually told them that. That is Satan's plan. Turn your head on questionable practices. Give in what's to your advantage. Don't be a fool. Nobody's going to know. Well, what was Jesus' response? Again, he responds by quoting Scripture in verse 5. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Jesus saw right through Satan's lies. Jesus was willing to wait to fulfill God's plan His way. He knew that if He did it Satan's way, everything would have been reversed. Instead of inheriting the earth, He would have lost it. Instead of redeeming the world, He would have joined it. He would have disqualified Himself as Savior and King. That is Satan's way to overpromise and underdeliver. It never turns out the way he promises. Remember what he said to Eve in the garden? Surely God didn't say not to eat this fruit. If you eat it, you're going to be like God. It was a half-truth, but it was really just a lie. Satan makes the temptation seem good, but his intention is destruction. Jesus' response was, there will be no deals with the devil, no shortcuts. I'm going to follow God's plan, whatever the cost. Temptation number three comes in verses 9 through 11. It says, And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, on this temptation, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, up on the pinnacle of the temple complex, probably overlooking the Kidron Valley, several hundred feet below him. He tells him, Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, I think it's interesting you notice that how Jesus quoted Scripture, now Satan quotes Scripture. He uses even the same introduction that Jesus had been using. It is written. And he tries to twist the Scriptures to his benefit. He quotes a passage from a Messianic psalm where God pledges to protect the Messiah. Satan offers Jesus an opportunity to allow God to fulfill his word. Pretty shrewd, isn't it? The devil either hoped that God would, wouldn't act and Jesus would be killed and then therefore he wouldn't go to the cross or he hoped by forcing God to act miraculously that Jesus would not be in submission to God's will and plan. This was a temptation to presume on God, to back him into the corner where he had to act. Sensationalism has always appealed to the flesh. Many of the Jews were always looking for a sign. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew twelve thirty nine: an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. But miracles and signs don't cause faith. They were used to strengthen and confirm faith of believers, but they never produced it. Now, Jesus would not respond to this act of sensationalism and presumption. Jesus, again, quotes a simple passage from Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As I thought about this, I thought, How is this temptation brought to us today? I don't think any of us have been tempted to jump off a building and ask God to save us. Hopefully not. You might need to be in a mental institution if you were doing that. How can we relate this one to our lives? I think in some ways this temptation is more subtle and dangerous because it actually seemingly encourages people to exercise faith in God. It can cause us to demand things from God. If we do everything according to some well-orchestrated set of rules and procedures, then God will respond. If we do A, B, C, then God's going to do D. As I thought about that, I thought about the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it gospel. I think that falls into this category. If the right formula is used, then God has to respond. I tried to make it personal, and I had to think about my own life, and I admit that I've been guilty of falling into this temptation a few times as well. I remember once when I was praying and fasting for my son, Wes, and I prayed and fasted for several days, and when things didn't come out the way I was praying, I have to admit that I was a little bit angry with God. I, and I was, it was almost like I was saying, okay, God, I did my part. Why haven't you done yours? It shows how much I need to grow in my faith. And I repented of that. Well, Jesus wasn't about to fall into this temptation. He just simply said, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Don't do it. So we've seen the preparation, we've seen the temptations, how Jesus dealt with them, and now in verse 13, the victory. Verse 13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. In the parallel version in Matthew, when Satan was finished with the temptation, Jesus told him, Be gone. I am done with you. Be gone. And Satan left. He had no choice. The Lord gives all of us the power to resist Satan. Sometimes I think we don't understand that we have the power to resist satan before we were saved we did not have that power now we have the power to resist satan 
James assures us in his writing, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. And I think it's important to note that although we are not Jesus and we do sin, because we are redeemed, we have that new nature and we have the Holy Spirit to help us and we have the ability to overcome sin where before we did not. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen comes to mind. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that what you are able. And with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. And that plainly tells us that with every temptation that comes, the Father will provide a way out. We may not always take the way out, but he provides it. We don't have to succumb to it. You see people that say that I couldn't help it. You know, I was just, I, I could not help it. Well, you can. The Bible clearly says that there is a way out. And I think sometimes we are guilty of accepting defeat when we don't have to. Before I prepared this lesson, I have to admit that as I was thinking about these things and when I thought about the word temptation, I thought of the big sins. You know, I thought of the Ten Commandments and and the big sins, you know, adultery and, and lying and cheating and stealing. And we all know that all sin is abomination to the Lord. There's not categories in the Lord's eyes. And we know that Scripture teaches us that all sin is rebellion against God and yielding to temptation in any area is like yeast spreading through the dough. And this brought to my mind an instance that happened to me several years ago. And I probably I may have told it before, but it's really fits. I didn't ever really cook. So when Terry had the flu one time, and we needed to ha take cookies somewhere, so I made chocolate chip cookies. And I don't know if I've told this story, but they were beautiful. I had done a great job. I followed the recipe to the T. They were golden brown. The chocolate chips were sticking out perfect. It, they were they were just perfect, perfect cookies until we took a bite of them. And I had reached into the jar with the cornmeal instead of the sugar. <laughs> they looked, they smelled delicious, but they were not edible. How many things were wrong? Just one. Just one small, not really small, but it seemed small. And I destroyed the whole batch. Sin is like that. It might only be one small area in our life, but it could run if left uncorrected. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Respectable Sin, compares sin to cancer. He said it may start out small, but if untreated, can continue to grow and can eventually take over the entire body until it destroys us. So I was thinking about his book and The Respectable Sins, and he lists a bunch of them. What are the, some of the sins that in the church we don't list as big sins or important and we don't concentrate on defeating them sometimes in our life? Name some. Yes. Complaining. Complaining. Gossip. Worry. What would you say, Malcolm? Gossiping. Coveting. White lies. Laziness. Unthankfulness. We could go on and on and on, which we're saying these are some that we don't take as serious as maybe the big sins. And in his book, he really, you know, really shares how important it is for us to take these things seriously because all sin is abomination. Now, what we have to remember is that these sins start with a temptation. And we have to apply 
God's principles of defeating temptation to overcome. The first thing we have to do is identify these things, these things that we're tempted with. What I am struggling with is not what you're struggling with. Well, it might be sometimes, but we all are different. We are different in the struggles that we have, and we have to identify the things that we struggle with. Even last Friday night, this past Friday night, Terry and I struggled with a temptation, probably me more than her, but we decided to watch a movie. We were both tired, and we decided to just eat supper and watch a movie. We found one that was rated TV-14. We thought, well, that won't be too bad. We never watch R-rated movies. We, we tried to, to not do that, but here we did. We picked this movie, and we didn't take the time to research it and to find out if it what, what was in it. Right from the start, it had a lot of bad language. There was a sex scene within a few minutes. But part of me wanted to just wait a while, see if it went away, you know, see if it got better. But as I was watching, I couldn't help but remember Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things is true, whatever things is honorable, whatever thing is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, you know the verse. Don't dwell on these things. And we decided to turn it off. We, we did good. We didn't succumb and keep watching. We turned it off relatively quickly. But it would have been sin for me to keep watching, to expose myself and my wife to that when I knew it was wrong. But fortunately, we, had the, the right, we did the right thing that time. But why is that important? Some people would say that's so insignificant. But why is that important? Because if you allow those temptations, those small temptations to go on and on and on, your heart becomes hardened to it. Your life becomes, you know, that to where that doesn't bother you. And then it leads to something else. Sin is pervasive. That's why knowing and memorizing Scripture is so helpful. Jesus didn't have to turn to the scrolls and look up the Scriptures. He knew them. They were hidden in his heart. And we need to do the same thing so that when we struggle with sin, Scripture will come to mind and help us battle the temptation. Our text reminds us that Satan custom designs a plan of attack for you individually. He individually, he knew what he was trying to do with Christ. He knows where, he's, where you're weak and where he's going to attack you. And he will try to appeal to our selfish ambitions to get us to conform to Scripture, to our life instead of our life to Scripture. He will try to get us to presume upon God and His promises and grace. And we should never be content with where we are or presume that you have mastered every temptation. I read a story in my study that illustrates about being overconfident in ourselves and our ability to beat temptation. It was about Gordon MacDonald, who at the time in 1986 was the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He was asked the question, if Satan were to blow you out of the water, how do you think he would do it? Mr. McDonald said, I'm not sure I know. All sorts of ways, I suppose. But I know there's one way he wouldn't get me. He'd never get me in the area of my personal relationship with my family. That's one place where I have no doubt I'm as strong as one can get. Within two years of making that statement, this admirable and respectable Christian leader was a broken man. He had committed adultery against his wife and nearly lost everything he had. Satan, who is called the tempter many times in Scripture, is out to get you. He is out to get me. He is out to destroy our lives. He doesn't care how spiritual we are or how many times we go to church or how secure we are in our Christians' homes. He is going to tempt us to sin, hoping to lead us astray. But we can take comfort because Jesus has been there before us. He's met the worst Satan can throw at him, and he's defeated him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Living in us, we have the ability to defeat it too. There's a lot more we could say on this topic of temptation. Even in these verses, we could go down the passage 
to Ephesians, putting on the whole armor of God, and we could look at that. But for today, I just want you to picture Jesus and, and what he went through and how his response was so simple. He just quoted scripture back to Satan and refused to give in. He wasn't blindsided. You know, in our beginning of the, the verses we looked at, he was prepared. We have to prepare ahead of time to battle Satan and his attacks. He was in constant state of watching and praying. We need to be in a constant state of watching and praying. He was in fellowship and communion with the Father. We need to be in constant fellowship and communion with the Father. He was being led by the Spirit. He was walking in step with the Spirit. He was allowing the Spirit to control his life. We need to be allowing the Spirit to be in control of our lives in all ways. And he knew and he applied the Word of God to his life. And if we do that, if we follow his example, we too can have victory over sin in our life. We don't have to fall to temptation. We can, we can find that way of escape and we can defeat it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time together. Father, in this quick overview of the temptation of Christ, may the word challenge us to be more faithful, to prepare ourselves for the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Father, may we be able to stand because we are walking in communion with you. And Father, may you help all of us to spend more time meditating on your word and putting your scripture into our hearts that we may not sin against you. And Father, may, most of all, may you just give us the strength, Father, to, to walk with you on a day, daily basis, moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision, walking in the way of your word. And Father, we will be thankful for your help in this regards and give you the glory for it. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.